beautiful place. And uh, the, uh, the men's clinic has been going on for 70 years. And thousands and thousands have gone through that place. Um, we got to experience and enjoy uh, just preaching from 8 a.m. till you know after 10 o'clock at night. Um, just music and singing and preaching and music and singing and preaching and music and singing and preaching and it was great. Uh, they had 18 boys uh, that were part of the preacher boy competition. Um, these preacher boys come in. They prepare a very short sermon. Um, it's between five and, and, and ten minutes long, and uh, just a quick um, message. Uh, they're graded on it, judged on it. They each get a hundred dollars just for showing up and, and presenting it. They win scholarships to Bible colleges um, across the country and are challenged to go into the ministry. We saw a young man, nine years old. He couldn't compete <laughs> in the contest. But he wanted to preach. Oh my goodness, I'd let him loose on you all. He was, the enthusiasm, the excitement, the, the accuracy of rightly dividing the word of truth before people. Fourth grade, <laughs> thinking, oh my goodness, what is God going to do with him? And then I remembered, you know, Samuel was called when he was just a boy. I believe 12 years old and he heard God calling him and he ran into Eli. Eli, are you calling me? No, 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 I'm not calling you. Go back to bed. He hears God calling me. Eli, are you calling me? No, no, go back to bed. Go back. Finally, he says, answer, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm here. I'm listening. And God called him into the ministry of, of his word. And it was just a joy. Mark's excited. I'm excited. What a, what a wonderful trip. I wish I could take all you guys and ladies. They have expanded. It's no longer just the men's conference down there. Now they also have a women's conference going on at the same time in another area. And they have a youth conference going on. They're trying to combat the problem that the North American Christian Convention changed this past year from being a, a once a year of our church's conventions to being four different localized regional conventions that are dealing more with just preachers rather than family. And so it, it was it was a wonderful experience. And he's excited. I'm excited. Um, you know, you're talking about giving. And one of the things, you know, God tells us to be a cheerful giver. Actually, the, the Greek word is, we get our word hysterical from. You know, he wants us to be a hysterical giver. It's like the kind of giving that you go, I can't believe I threw in the farm. <laughs> you know, but the, but that's what they did. The early church, as we're going through the book of Acts, and, and we're now in Acts chapter 9, so if you have your Bibles, open up to 9. But the early church, when they got together, they, they gave. As anybody had need within the body of Christ, they, they met those needs. And the Scripture tells us that sometimes there were those who had houses or land. They had property, and they sold it, and they gave it to the church. And they're going, I can't believe I just did that. I can't, that's you know hysterical. Hysterical giving, generosity to meet the needs of the people within the, the body of Christ. And you have to understand, because some of these people were losing their jobs because they became a Christian. They were being kicked out of the family because they became a Christian. They had no income. How are we going to take care of them? The church met their needs. 
because people were hysterical givers. And we ought to come to church sometimes thinking, I can't believe, I can't believe I just sold that other car and I'm bringing the money here. I can't believe that I, you know, but we've got to do it. And, and with joy in our heart. Because God will use whatever we provide in our gifts to do insurmountable things in the kingdom. But we've just got to be willing to be used. So I appreciate the encouragement, the excitement. We've got to be filled with just the joy of the Lord. Now, let's go back into our Bibles in Acts chapter 9. As we think about becoming a part of the church and becoming part of the kingdom and, and, and loving God and serving Him, and, and this chapter begins with, uh, with meeting the man by the name of Saul. He was a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. He was a student under Gamaliel. He was, he was a Jew of all Jews. He was powerful and educated, and, and he had then taken on the role from Jerusalem being, in essence, knighted to go out around the world and to attack people who were Christians and to, to throw them in prison, to drag them out of their homes and their businesses and to bring them down to Jerusalem for, for their trial and their hearing and their conviction and their execution because they become Christians. We've met Saul. He was on the road to Damascus up north. And on that road, he met Jesus in a blinding light. And he heard Jesus and saw Jesus and was confronted by him there. And then no longer could he see, and he was taken into a place there in Damascus to the house of a man on Straight Street. He was introduced to another man by the name of Ananias. And Ananias, who did not want to go meet him, he finally made it there and he prayed with Saul. And all of a sudden, after praying with him, the scales that had blinded his eyes fell off. And he was told to arise, be baptized, and wash away his sins. And he immediately got up and he did that. And here's where we find ourselves now after his blinding, after his, his being led into the, to the city there, and after Ananias came and miraculously he regains his sight, and Ananias begins to help Saul understand from Scriptures what had happened on the road to Damascus and who Jesus really was. Now today our Scripture is going to help us understand how God turned Saul into the Apostle Paul, into a servant of the kingdom. And he's, he's, if, you, if you read through the book of Acts and you, and you start to look through the writings there in the New Testament, you discover that, that Paul, previously Saul, he becomes one of the greatest servants this church has probably ever seen. Now, we've got a lot of people who, who are humble and they, Mother Teresa, to serve those who are less fortunate. And she did not do that so that she could achieve fame and fortune and recognition all around the world. No, she, her whole goal was just to humble herself and serve the kingdom of God through serving people. Well, that, that's, that's, that's who Paul becomes. He becomes a servant. And this matters a lot because God wants all Christians to become servants of His. Now, with all this background in mind, let's begin by reading at verse 19 of chapter 9, the book of Acts. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. 
And all those hearing him continued to be amazed. And we're saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? But Paul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving, by proving that Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews, they plotted together to do away with him. (laughs) Stop a second. Here he is. He's the one who is going after Christians to kill them, to drag them to prison, to get them to stop professing that Jesus is the Christ. And he now has become one of them. And now the other Jews are coming after him and they're plotting and scheming to kill him. They got to shut him up. Tables have been turned. But it says in verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and they let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Do you see the severity of what's taking place here? His life is seriously in danger. And the cities would have walls built around them with a walkway across the top. And sometimes within these walls, there might even be homes and rooms built. So, I mean, these are big walls to protect the inhabitants inside. And most cities had them because of the, the conflict that would arise from neighboring cities and neighboring kingdoms. And so he's within the walls of Damascus. And they find out that they're going to try and kill him. And so at night, the other Christians there in Damascus, they sneak out to the wall, they put him in a basket, and they lower him over the edge of that wall down to where he can run away in safety. It goes on. After he leaves Damascus, because they're trying to kill him, He heads south back to Jerusalem where he came from. So here in verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, the other Christians. But they were all afraid of him. Not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren, those are the Christians, learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Have you ever thought of yourself as a servant? 
I mean, honestly, have you ever thought? I know not when you were a kid. Yet, Mom, I'm your slave. Always making, you know, Dad's always making us. But honestly, thought of yourself as a servant. To where your, your task is to serve those around you. See, as Christians, God wants all of us to be servants. He, he wants us to, to understand that we put other people first. Paul certainly considered himself to be a servant of the Lord, and, and he was careful to mention that fact in some of the letters that he wrote. Just listen to some of these things. In Romans chapter 1, Paul introduces himself to the churches at Rome as a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, he, he, he says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in verse 19, Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. And in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, Paul says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. You see, Paul considered himself to be a servant of God. And really that makes sense. Because Jesus himself did not consider himself to be Lord of all things, but he considered himself to be a servant. And if you look over Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 through 28, Jesus tells his disciples about his own servanthood, about why he has come into this world. Listen to what he says. He said, it's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man, that's his name for himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus called himself a servant. He didn't call himself Lord. He called himself a servant. And he wants us to live in service not only to our God, but to others. But most importantly, we are servants of God to do His will. I mean, you're created to contribute to the world not just to be a consumer. You're created to make a difference not just to be on display. What matters is not how long you live in this life, but how you live and what you do while you're living. See, the Bible teaches us that we were created to serve. We were called to serve. We were equipped to serve. And we were commanded to serve one another in love. And that's really who we are. But how can we be servants of God? Well, this passage of Scripture here, I think, helps us to understand a little bit. There's four things that I want us to dig into today. The first is this. That first, notice that, that God, He's going to give us the strength to be the servant that we need to be. 
He strengthens us. I mean, He gives us all that we need and everything we need. And Paul's story proves this truth to us. So let's look again at verses 19 through 22. For several days, he was with the disciples who were in Damascus. And immediately, immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. That's not in the places where the Christians are meeting. That's the places where the Jews meet. He's going into, in essence, the lion's den to tame the lions. They had been waiting for him to come, the Jews in the synagogues. And so he comes knocking on their door and walks in, and they're ready to rally around and go with him to go get the Christians. And instead of going to get the Christians, he's telling them who Jesus is. And he's proclaiming his faith now in Jesus. He immediately begins doing this. He's saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing Him continue to be amazed. And they're saying, Is this not He who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on the name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them found before the chief priest? But Saul kept increasing in strength. He's confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So, so Paul... Is trying to, to convince people that, that Jesus is the Christ. And, and, and God is giving Paul the strength that he needs in these verses. Verse 19, he's strengthened. Well, we understand he was strengthened by food. He arose, he ate, he got stronger. But he's also strengthened by the Spirit to go out and do the things to proclaim. Now, the word for strength here means that Paul was invigorated. How many of you have ever been invigorated? But that's what it, that's what it is. I mean, he's strengthened physically for the work that God wants him to do. And it's the same word that's used here when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane that night before he went on to the cross. And in Luke chapter 22, verses 42 and 43, Jesus says to his Father in heaven, He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Now an angel of the Lord from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him invigorating him so that he could walk the Via Della Rosa. So that he could take that beam of a cross upon his shoulders and carry it to his death. We wonder, where did he get the strength? A man who had been beaten so severely as Jesus was by those Roman guards, who had had the 40 lashes minus one, and who had been spit upon and punched and made fun of and mocked and has not eaten. And we wonder, how does he get the strength? Even after losing all of that blood, how does he have the strength to do that? Because God strengthened him. And this is the same word that is used now here for Paul, for Saul. God strengthened him. Gave him the ability to do what needs to be done. Now down in verse 22, we see another word for strength. And so here God's word says that Paul kept increasing in strength and confounding those who lived in Damascus, the Jews who lived in Damascus. Now the strength that is here in verse 22 is where we get our word dynamite. Dunamis. All right? So he continues increasing in dynamic power. Yeah, you see what's going on? He is becoming a force to be reckoned with in Damascus. 
And he is now standing boldly proclaiming before anybody and everybody, even though he knows they're plotting and scheming to kill him. Now the other Christians there are starting to kind of worry. <laughs> they're going to take out Paul. We need to do something. But he's getting stronger and bolder and more powerful as he continues to preach and to proclaim the Word of God. And you see, God wants to give us the same kind of spiritual strength. And, and I know that's true because in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, when he tells us, finally be strong in the Lord and in His strength of His might. He wants us to have this same type of strength. And He, he grants every believer to have the spiritual strength. And one reason is, is because God's strength helps us overcome our past. It's powerful. I was reconnected with Doug Doris down at the Kaimichis. Doug used to be up in Jefferson City, and he helped start the uh, Christian Prison Ministry of Missouri, which we support, and it is exploding because the Christian Prison Ministry of Missouri is no longer the Christian Ministry of Missouri. It is now the Christian Prison Ministry of the Midwest because they are in over 20 state prisons here in Missouri now. They are also in prisons in Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and opened up the doors into Illinois. And you wonder, how does God strengthen people to do these things? And He changes them. And He helps them forget their past. And there are men and women coming out of prison today, and they've got awful pasts. But God has the ability to give them the strength to deal with their past and to move forward and to make a difference in the kingdom of God. That's the same kind of strength that we're talking about right here. And imagine how Paul must have felt when he realized how wrong he had been. How misguided and misunderstood of the Scriptures which he had poured his life into understanding. That all of a sudden, it is as if God turns the page on him and there's some new chapter and he's like, Whoa! What? Everything I thought is wrong. And he sees Jesus for the first time with real eyes and with real hope and with real faith. And that realization could have led to a paralyzing guilt. But God gave Paul the strength to overcome it and he gives the strength to make a brand new start in life. And he's willing to do the same thing for you and for me. Now God also strengthened Paul to overcome the opposition of the gospel. We see that in verse 23 through 25. As Paul has to leave Damascus because of the unbelieving Jews that are trying to kill him. But in verse 22, they can't overcome Paul's teaching. They are confounded. They are dumbfounded. He is proving to them through the scriptures that they have been studying their entire lives and remember, he's had one of the best teachers and one of the best instructors, and he knows it inside and out. And now all of a sudden, it's as if God has turned a light switch on, and he sees with fresh eyes Jesus in the Old Testament, which he'd never seen before. Now just prior to this, we know that, that Philip had gone down to the road to Gaza and he was encounters a man from Ethiopia in his chariot heading back, and he's reading from Isaiah. And he says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? Well, how can I unless somebody tells me? So he was invited up into the chariot, and he began with that very passage there in Isaiah 53. 
and he proved to him through the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus is the answer. Paul is doing that and he's proving to them Jesus is the Christ. Even though they killed him, he is the Christ. And it's amazing. They don't know what to do with this. So God wants to give us that kind of strength and that kind of spiritual strength, but even get better to say that God is our strength. Listen to what Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. He is our strength. The second thing I think we need to discover is this, that we can be servants of God that He wants us to be because, because He'll give us strength, but also He gives us a strategy. He gives us an idea and a, and a, and a method and a plan to, to do this. So look at verse 9, 20 and 22. You see, Paul helps us to understand the Lord's strategy. So listen again, verse 20. Immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name? And who has come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Paul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. You see, in these verses, there are two key parts to the strategy. First part is this. Paul preaches the good news about Jesus. He's telling people the truth, who Jesus is. That's what it said there. He immediately began proclaiming Jesus. He doesn't wait. He has to start. That he is the Son of God. He doesn't just lollygag around. He jumps up and he goes and he starts immediately. And I have to wonder myself, am I putting off conversations with people that I ought to be having? about my faith and about who Jesus is? Uh, how about you? Are there people you need to be talking to about your faith, about who Jesus is? I mean, are, are we just kind of sitting back hoping somebody else will do that? Or, or should we be the ones that was once told that when you're thinking about somebody, immediately make yourself call them. Do something. Write them a letter. Contact them. Communicate with them. As soon as they come into your mind, obviously God has popped them in there for some reason. Don't let that moment pass. But with immediacy and with urgency, pray for them. Communicate with them. Do something. Because they're on your heart and they're on your mind. And let's do something. I thought, I like that. I need to do more of that. You see, we need to be able to to immediately communicate with the people. Maybe, maybe it's, it's about you need to go give them your testimony about what God has done for you. Maybe you need to invite them to church, or maybe you need to invite them to read the Bible with you, or you need to do something, but, but now is the time to do it. And so Paul preaches the good news. In verse 22, he was able to prove the good news because he studied the Scriptures before. Even though he wasn't studying the Scriptures to see Jesus, did you get that? He wasn't studying the Scriptures to see Jesus, but because he studied them, now Jesus makes sense of the mystery of the Old Testament. And it's as if it's reading it brand new for the very first time. And he's amazed. How verse after verse after verse after verse and story and individual and character and prophecy and 
all falls into place and it proves that Jesus is their Messiah. So we have to understand that under God's leadership in Paul's life, he looks into the Old Testament, he found verse after verse that obviously pointed to Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for our sins. Now, now I've read articles where, where people said that the Word of God isn't enough to persuade people to become Christians. Don't believe it. All it takes is the Word of God. It is alive and active, and powerful and sharp. And it has the ability to divide, it says even bone and marrow, even the soul of man. The Word of God is conviction. If we just put it into their hands. Papua New Guinea. Remote as remote can be down in Asia. Islands. And, and people who, they don't even, until just recently, have a written language. And the pioneer Bible translators have moved in there over the last couple of decades. They have begun to create a language for them that's written listening to their sounds and their guttural things and the noises they make and to, to come up with a, an alphabet for them, putting it together. They have completed a translation of the New Testament and they are working now on the very last book of translation for the Old Testament. And all 66 books of our Bible will have been translated into a new language. They're anticipating it being done here in 2019. And a people now will have their own ability to read. Now they've got to be taught to read. But the Word of God is going to change that country. Powerful. Powerful. So, we can count on the Word of God. There's a preacher named Mitchell Gonzalez. He, he, he had this story about his two-year-old daughter, Natalie. He said he, said he saw his two-year-old daughter, Natalie, coming into the area carrying his, his Bible, and he's got it in a case with the handle, and he, she comes walking in carrying that, and, and, and she, she, was a, she dragged it in front of a very tall table that they had in the room, and he was about to take his Bible away from her when she threw it on the floor and she stood on the Bible so that she could reach up and get something down. <laughs> he says, in that moment, it was as if the Lord spoke to him and said, if you would take my word, bring it where you need and stand on it, you'll reach things that you could never reach before. I thought, how profound is that? I stand alone on the word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Yeah. That is the book for me. Do you stand on it? Do you take it wherever you need to reach things and, and allow it to give you that boost so that you can have a, a better vision and a better reach and a better understanding of things? Isn't that unique? You see, there are many strategies to help us spread the gospel. Sunday school here at this church is one strategy. 
We have in the mornings here before school, McDevos that Adam does with our kids in junior high and high school on Monday and Thursday mornings. They meet at McDonald's and they have a Bible study before they go off to school. I don't know if you guys realize they do that. We've been doing that here uh, since I came in 2020. Give the kids a fresh start before they get into the school. That's, that's one strategy. Voyagers, Thursdays after school is another strategy. Our elementary kids come here and they, and they, yes, they play and they release all their energy that was pent up all day at school and, and they study and they make crafts and they learn stories of the Bible. And it's another strategy to infiltrate their minds with the gospel message. We have other things that go on and, and vacation Bible school, which is coming up in the end of July. And we need you to help. Because we are going to change this community's kids with the gospel. Teaching in other countries is a mission strategy for spreading the gospel. And we've got a team heading to the Democratic Republic of Congo this summer. Not only are they going to be helping with putting in a water well and filtration system, but they're going to be teaching the kids and the orphans there. And they're going to be working with the ladies on teaching them a skill of, of how to sew and to do things to make a trade for themselves. That's a strategy to win people for Christ. Our meals with a mission gives us an open door to the world around us that we may never travel to and to see and to understand how the gospel message is changing the lives and the countries around this world. That's another strategy. But ultimately, our strategy must be based on the Word of God because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Thirdly, I think we can be servants of God not only because we've got, He gives us a strategy, but I believe this is He will give us support as well. You see, God will give us support <clears throat> that we need, and it often comes from each one of us supporting each other. It, it turns out that way that we really do need each other. As, as we see in Acts chapter 9, verse 23 through 25, you see, Paul desperately needed the support of the other Christians there in Damascus because it's a matter of life and death. And so when many days had elapsed and the Jews plotted together to, to do away with them, but their plot became known to Saul, they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. He's got to get out of here somehow. And if we guard the gates and we keep the door barred, we know that when he tries to leave, we'll take him. But we can't take him through the door. We'll send him over the wall. He could not have done that on his own. We need each other support. And you see what he says when he got that life-saving help there in verse 28 through 30 is another example. He's with them in Jerusalem, moving about freely in Jerusalem, proclaiming, speaking boldly on the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death, even in Jerusalem. So what did they do? The church, the brethren, they find out about the plot to kill him. So they take him down to the seacoast of Caesarea. They put him there in the city, put him on a ship, and send him back home to Tarsus. Put him to a place where he can have a respite, get some freedom, get some recoup, because they're after him. And maybe he can do something different. You see, Paul is one of the bravest men who ever lived, I think. But it's important to see that there was a time for Paul to head for the hills. There's a time to speak, but there's also another time to leave. 
And we need to seek God's wisdom. When is that time appropriate? We know we've got to speak. But there also comes a time when we've got to back off. See, what would have happened to Paul if his Christian friends hadn't been there to help him in Damascus or in Jerusalem? Well, when you think about the missionary journeys that Paul took through Asia Minor, and he planted churches and he, he, he took the gospel message with him, that would not have happened. The Gentile world may not have been able to get the gospel message because he was the one that was going after them. Verse 26 and 27, he, they used Barnabas to help Paul in a very different way. And, and, and we see that, that Barnabas boldly goes and has a conversation personal with Paul. Because nobody wants to deal with him because they're afraid he's trying to deceive them and trick them. And, and once they get within his presence, he's going to arrest them and throw them off into prison and execute them. But Barnabas, we saw him earlier in the church, son of encouragement. He boldly steps out and has a conversation with Paul. He finds out it's true. Paul has become a Christian. Paul has surrendered his life to our Savior Jesus Christ. And Paul is actually trying to preach and teach other people from the Old Testament to who Jesus is today. And, and, and so Barnabas says, okay, come with me. And he takes he takes Paul and he introduces him to the church and to the leaders and to the other apostles there in Jerusalem. And he says, he's one of us, guys. He needed Barnabas. Sometimes maybe all it takes is for us to stand boldly with somebody else whose life has been changed and say, church, realize they may have been a bad character in the past, but but Christ has changed their heart. And who they are today, they're a servant of Christ. We need to be willing to do that. You see, God is going to give us the support we need, so we need to take comfort in this truth and do everything you can to be a helping hand for God's church. The fourth and final thing is this. We can be servants of God wants us to be because He's going to give us success. It's not, it's not our success. It's it's His success. He's the one who does the work through us and in us. We just have to be the willing vessel to be used. And so look what it says there in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. Why? Because Saul is no longer running around dragging people out. And it was being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continues, the church continues to increase and to grow daily by people who are becoming Christians. My question is this for us. Is the church in Versailles growing daily by people becoming Christians? couple astounding numbers that I heard this week that I'm ashamed of. The church in America is dying. Literally. Across the board, all denominations and non-denominations, whatever, the church in America is decreasing in numbers. Christian churches alone. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, what? 
Christian churches alone in 2018 lost 9,000 churches. Or 6,000. 6,000. 6,000 Christian churches in the United States closed their doors last year. Ten thousand churches of Christ closed their doors last year, and we can start talking about some of the denominational churches that are closing. It is wild. What is happening to the church in America? I wish I could tell you, but the church in China. It's growing by thousands daily. The church in India, who is now being persecuted even by their government, is growing daily. Maybe we need to be persecuted here in Versailles so that we will win more people to Christ. Would you pray for that? <laughs> A little trepidation on our part there. Your neighbors are dying and they're going to hell. Your cousins are dying and they're going to hell. Your children are dying and they're going to hell. If they don't put their faith in Jesus Christ. But he can make the ministry of his word and the gospel successful if we are willing to let him use us. We may face death. We may have to be lowered over the walls of the city of Versailles to escape the people who are watching the gates. But when we look at this passage of Scripture, all throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria, it is growing now because the one man who was seriously persecuting the church has become the church. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 4 and 5. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I am in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And I wonder, have I been cut off of the vine? Have you been pruned off of the vine as well? Are we bearing fruit? I mean, this is a condemnation for us. If we're not, if we're not Introducing people to Jesus? We're not a part of Him. And that scares me. 
Because I know in Versailles and in our community, there are hundreds, if not thousands, who have no relationship with Jesus. And what are we doing to introduce them to Him? Our success comes from God. That's why it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, about the early church, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. After Stephen was stoned, the church scattered. Persecution broke out in Acts chapter 11. In verse 20 and 21 it says, But they were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 7, Paul said, When then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord had given opportunity to each one. I planted, Paulus watered, and God was the causing of the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Spiritual success has to come from God, and it will come from God. That's why in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 9, it says that do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For wherever a man sows this, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 57 and 58, Paul also writes these words and he says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brother, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And God is going to give us a spiritual success that we seek for His church, just like He did Paul and Barnabas. But we have to do our part and what a difference we can make. We can make a difference right here at home through our own personal witness and our own the things that we do within this church to, to, to encourage people and to lift them up and to strengthen them. We can also make a difference anywhere the Lord's going to send us. Alexander McLaren, who's a very well-known British preacher from the 1800s, once McLaren, he, he got an unbeliever to promise him that he would come to hear him uh, on one of the four Sundays of that month to listen to him preach and present the gospel. He got this guy that did not believe in God to say, okay, I'll come, I'll come. Let's leave me alone, I'll come. So that lost man shows up. He was faithful to his promise to come. And he listened intently to McLaren's sermon. And after the fourth message, he found his salvation. McLaren was delighted. He, he was overjoyed that this man finally became a Christian. And he couldn't resist asking which of the four sermons did it for him. But this man replied, he said, no. He said, your sermons, sir, they were helpful, but they were not what finally persuaded me. Now listen. Listen to what changed his mind to where he decided he would give his life over to Christ. He said, <clears throat> there was an elderly woman who helped him on a slippery sidewalk, whom he had helped on a slippery sidewalk. He said, she looked up into my face and she said, I wonder if you know my Savior, Jesus Christ. He's everything to me in the world. I'd like for you to know Him too. 
It wasn't the wise and persuasive words that McLaren had preached, the four sermons that he poured his heart into to try and convict this man whom all of a sudden was now sitting in his presence for these four Sundays. But it was the simple words of an elderly woman whom he was trying to help on a slippery sidewalk when she looks up at him and tells him, Oh, I wonder if you know my Savior. I want you to know him. Simple little conversation convicted his heart. Yeah, your sermons helped. But that woman and her desire for me to know Jesus did it all. And you have friends and you have family that all it's going to take is for you to say, do you know my Savior? We're going to have our invitation.